All right, Alexander, let's uh, do an update on what is happening in Ukraine. Things are looking very, very bad. Not quite to the point of a Ukraine military collapse, but uh, the Russian military is really uh, putting a lot of pressure on Ukraine's military, and uh, it is starting to crack. I mean, I think we are seeing visible cracks and not so much us. I don't think that's the important part. The collective West is starting to see visible cracks. And as we have been reporting over the past couple of weeks, uh, they are absolutely panicking. So uh, let's let's start with the front lines and then we can move on to, to the diplomatic uh, situation. Maybe talk a bit about uh, Ukraine, the NATO meeting and, and any other... Uh, diplomacy that's that's happening the eu the us and project ukraine as long as it takes and all that stuff but let's start with the with the front lines yeah let's start with the front lines and i mean we had important news yesterday and it was from both two basically two places where the russians are pushing hard now you said that the russians are pushing and they are indeed pushing but it's important to say that the russians still are only pushing with a limited fraction of their total forces. We haven't yet seen them deploy anything like the number of men and machines that they're now starting to accumulate. So it's still preliminaries. And yet even this is now having an effect. So yesterday we had really important news from Bakhmut. And you remember, Bakhmut was the big story at the start of this year you know, right through the first part, half of the year. It's a tremendous battle for Bakhmut. The Ukrainians made a huge effort to defend Bakhmut. They were eventually defeated. They lost Bakhmut. They then counterattacked. There's a big counterattack throughout August, September. Well, that's now completely run out, of course, and it's the Russians who are now advancing. And yesterday, they captured a village which the Ukrainians, I should say, call Khromovo. The Russians call it Artemivskoye, but let's stick with Khromovo, which is the name I've always known it by. So Khromovo was captured. Now, there's two important things to say about Khromovo. Firstly, the Russians have never captured it before since the start of the special military operation. It was a village, for example, that the Wagner organization, which was leading the assault in Bakhmut at the start of this year, never captured. So we see that the Russians have now gone beyond the furthest advance of the Wagner organization in this part of the Bakhmut front lines. And that again tells us that the Ukrainian counterattack around Bakhmut has failed. The second thing is that Khromovo is potentially very important because it opens the way to an attack on a larger, bigger village called Bogdanovka. If the Russians are able to capture Bogdanovka, and the reports yesterday that they're making the first steps to try to capture Bogdanovka, then they are not just to the northwest of Bakhmut, they are now to the west of Bakhmut. They start controlling territory stably to the west of Bakhmut. And if you look at a map, that folds all Ukrainian positions to the south, to the southwest. So the Ukrainian forces 
would probably be unable to maintain their current positions anywhere along the backward front lines. Now, this is important partly because the Ukrainians have attached so much importance to Bakhmut, but also because it opens the way for the Russians to finally fully consolidate control of Bakhmut and push forward, if they choose, further west. And there's a string of small towns. There's Chasov Yar, which looks very vulnerable. There's another place called Konstantinovka, which is a little further to the west. And then beyond that, there's Kramatorsk, which is, you know, the key town in this area. If the Ukrainians start being pushed all the way back to Kramatorsk, then you're talking about a major operational crisis. So that's bad news. This is bad news for Ukraine. It's an important piece of the chessboard around Bakhmut, and the Russians have just taken it, this village of Kromovo. But it's also looking bad in other places too. So the Russians have also continued to push forward in Avdeevka. And again, we had a whole collection, cascade of news from the Avdevka front lines. Now remember, Bakhmut was the big story at the start of this year. Avdevka is now the big story at the end of this year. It looks as if the Russians are moving forward pretty much everywhere, in every part of the lines on the Avdevka perimeter, they're continuing to advance. We discussed in our last video how they'd captured this industrial zone. They seem to be pressing further, deeper, from that part of their advance into um, Avdeevka. But they've also started, apparently, significant advances from the uh, southwest, from the north, and they're pushing more aggressively now beyond the railway. It's been confirmed that they're present in Stepovoye, this village to the west, and they're also moving further there. So big events taking place in Avdevka as well. And one senses again a situation where their front line, Ukrainian front lines are crumbling. Um, a Russian official, Jan Gagin, said that in the industrial zone, the Russians have found hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers, bodies of Ukrainian soldiers, that were abandoned there. And it looks as if the situation in Avdevka, in that part of the place, was in a total collapse, a rout. And bear in mind, if we're talking about 200 dead soldiers in this part of the battlefronts, the area, the, this area has been defended by a brigade, the 110th, a typical manpower, a typical amount of troops that a brigade would have would be about 4,000 at the start. It's most unlikely that this brigade is anywhere close up to strength. But if, you, if you're talking about 200 men out of a force of 4,000, that is a significant level of loss for just one sector of the battlefronts. And there's been a cascade of news about Russian advances elsewhere. The Russians have been advancing in uh, the Zaporozhye front, in two places along the Zaporozhye front, and they've been advancing to this village of Novo Mikhailovo, which uh, I don't really understand that battle, by the way, but anyway, they seem to be advancing there too. That's in central Donbass. And we're getting reports now that they're pushing forward in the Kupiansk, Liman area as well. And this morning we got reports that the first Leopard 1 tank
This is this late earlier German tank with a thin armour and the light gun that the first Leopard 1 tank has now been destroyed in the area, in this area in the north. So the impression one is getting is that the Russians advancing everywhere in every part of the front lines, pushing the Ukrainians back, gaining territory, coming closer to capturing Avdeevka, and finally stabilizing and consolidating their control, not just of Bakhmut itself, but of the entire Bakhmut area, but also pushing forward in other places. And just to explain why this is happening, it seems to me that there are now two straightforward reasons. First, Ukraine is short of men. This is now, I think, universally acknowledged. So soldiers who are defending front lines are now chronically under strength. The, the, the units are chronically under strength. The men are exhausted. They are, uh, you know, they have been fighting for months. Losses in the various offensives Ukraine has conducted have massively depleted the numbers in the Ukrainian military. And the second is that they're desperately short of shells. So they don't, are not able to bring down you know, large amounts of shell fire on advancing Russian troops. The European Union has now admitted that it's only supplied Ukraine 300,000 shells out of the 1 million it promised back in March. So they're very, very short of shells. They're suffering from shell hunger. They're trying to substitute FPV drones for shells, but FPV drones are, are much smaller. They, can, they do much less damage than, you know, shells do. And not only are the Russians not short of shells themselves, but of course the Russian Air Force is now active. They're bombing the Ukrainians with um, precision-guided uh, smart bombs. And some of these smart bombs, importantly, are now carry cluster munitions, which are much more powerful, just as the Russians said would be the case, much more powerful than the cluster munitions that Jake Sullivan decided to award to the um, Ukrainians back in August. So you can see what's happening. It's that the, the Ukrainians are being steadily ground down in every part of the battlefronts. And no one I know can come up with a way of turning this round. Talk about a huge mobilization coming. That's apparently going to be announced next week, but it'll take weeks to train men and then send them to the front line. The training they're going to get is not going to be remotely up to the level that's needed. They're going to be very young men, perhaps women, people with no background in the military before. So it'd be very difficult to integrate them into the military. And of course, with the shells, the problem of the shells, with the problems of the tanks, there really is no solution to it. Yeah, and uh, remember what Putin said a while back, uh, we haven't even started yet. Russia hasn't even started yet. Yes. It's, it, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. It, it's, what they're doing to Ukraine is, is, is unbelievable. Not when I mean they, I mean the collective West and NATO. What they're doing to Ukraine is is, is tragic, but yes. um, the the uh, yeah the, the stories of 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 the two hundred soldiers that you said that that the Russian military they they found 
Um, you're getting stories of uh, of mass desertions of 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 women. You are seeing women on the front line. I mean, I'm seeing every day more and more images and videos of women in trenches. You're going to have this huge mobilization. Uh, you know, and 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 you see the 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 entire gains, the small, <laughs> the entire, the small, minuscule gains that Ukraine made during the counteroffensive, Rabotinia, and all of this cheerleading over these these little villages that Ukraine captured in six months of the counteroffensive has been wiped away. Yes, been completely exactly. wiped away. Exactly. And, and, and what's your and, and what's your response from from NATO? And from Stoltenberg, I don't know if you caught the the press conference that Stoltenberg had. These people are delusional. Stoltenberg yes. was talking about uh, Ukraine has captured fifty uh, percent of the territory uh, in this war that that Russia took. He said uh, Ukraine has pushed back the Russian Black Fleet, the Russian uh, Black Sea uh, Fleet. Uh, Ukraine has won victories in the siege of Kiev. The the Kharkov counteroffensive and the what was the other the Kherson counteroffensive? That's what he said. Yes, that was what Stoltenberg told the media, told the world. It's a delusion. And then you have Annalena Baerbock, and I want your thoughts on this. And then you have Annalena Baerbock sending a, a warning to all of the the European uh, NATO foreign ministers not to uh, not to forget about Ukraine. We gotta we gotta you know support them for as long as it takes because what does Annalena Baerbock said? What does she say? This is this is fatal. This is becoming fatal for uh, for Ukraine. Uh, just just surrender, surrender. It's this is they're going to wipe away this entire uh, country, people, everything. Well, can I, can I just start with what you were saying about the women and the very young people that are now being dragooned into the bat into the war? Because that's basically what they're now starting to do. This is a terrible thing. Uh, Ukraine has already a huge demographic problems before the war. This is going to make it far, far worse. You're going to... I mean, it, it, it doesn't even bear thinking about what they're going to do. Um, quite apart from the personal tragedy that each and every one of these women and young people is going to suffer when they're thrown into the battle... Quite apart, quite apart from the personal tragedy of their parents and their husbands and their loved ones and their children that they might be. I mean, no one, no one should contemplate doing a thing like this. And you talked about Annalena Baerbock. Um, General Kuyat, who used to be the inspector general of the German armed forces, the Bundeswehr, and it was, you know, top NATO official. Well, he had some comments to make about Baerbock in a recent interview that he did. And he said, fanatical. And that is what this is starting to look like. I mean, he actually used that expression to describe, he said, in, 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 incompetent, but fanatical as well. Fanatical at the cost of someone else. Because, you know, pushing Ukraine to continue fighting in this way is is an absolute disaster. I mean, I, I would call it a crime, frankly. I mean, it is one of the most callous crimes against a nation I have ever seen. And, you know, all these people... Russia has not even started yet. Not even sorry, yet. I, have to, I, have to, I have to say Absolutely. that. They haven't even yeah. started yes. yet. Yes, 
I, as, as far as I'm aware, none of the men who have been called up this year in Russia, I mean, no, I say, none have been called up, who've joined the military this year, and we're no, now talking about something like 410,000 of them, have yet been engaged seriously in the war. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've now had a report, and I'm going to, I can't discuss who this person is, but he is an extremely well-regarded person. I mean, he writes for journals which people of the military world will know about. He's telling me that, in fact, it's, it's not 410,000, it's more. <laughs> the, the Russian military is even bigger than people think it is. And um, I've also been getting, again, from him, but also from others, actual figures about Russian military production. And, I mean, it's eye-watering. It's eye-watering. Uh, we haven't seen even a fraction of that being deployed yet. But, you know, uh, you've got to find some way around, and you're going to therefore throw these young men, these students, and these women into battle. I mean, as I said, it is unspeakable. It is horrible what is happening. But... You go to Stoltenberg, you mention Stoltenberg, you mention Annalena Baerbock, you mention Ursula von der Leyen. What are all of these three people doing? They're all busy at the moment doing something which is clearly intended to prevent negotiations between Russia and Ukraine from taking place. Stoltenberg himself has acknowledged now, I mean, he, he blurted it out. I don't think he intended to, but he blurted it out that the war happened because the Russians were anxious about the fact that Ukraine looked like it was going to join NATO and that for the Russians, this was an absolutely unacceptable thing. So what does he do? He's now working hard. He's working hard with, uh, you know, Anders Fogh and his predecessor. He's working hard with the NATO bureaucracy to accelerate Ukraine's membership bid into NATO, to try to get Ukraine into NATO. Um, Ursula von der Leyen and the European Commission, against you know massive amounts of doubt and scepticism um, amongst the EU member states, is pushing increasingly hard to get NATO, uh, Ukraine into the EU. Now, the reason they're taking these steps, and I've you know wondered about this, but I think the reason they're taking these steps is that because they know that these steps are going to create conditions, situations, which make it impossible for the Russians to agree to peace with Ukraine. The Russians have made it clear we are not accepting Ukraine's membership in NATO. They've been reasonably open until recently to Ukraine's membership of the EU. But I get the sense that even that is waning. So what do Stoltenberg and Ursula von der Leyen and Annalena Baerbock and people like that do? They accelerate the moves towards getting Ukraine into NATO and into the EU. Even the United States has said, you know, we're not keen about Ukraine joining NATO. We don't want Ukraine into NATO. No, that might lead to a war between us and the Russians. But Stoltenberg is driving it forward. And I can't help but think that the reason he's driving it forward and Ursula is driving it forward is because they don't want talks. They don't want negotiations. They would rather have Ukraine completely obliterated than face that, for them, nightmare prospect 
of some kind of a deal being done, either between the Ukrainians and the Russians, which, to be frank, looks incredibly unlikely, or even more dangerously for them, that deal being done between the, the Russians and the Americans if or when Donald Trump or someone likes him, like him becomes president. So this is now their overriding priority. And if hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian men and women, young men and women, are sent into battle and killed in order to prevent that happening, well, for them, that's a price worth, worth paying. And I think we need to say that. Yeah, it's, it, it's incredible when you think about it. Their, their number one concern is preserving their own power, saving their own butt. And it's such a concern for them that they would have no problem sacrificing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people if it means that they can they can preserve their their power. Absolutely. It's it's astonishing. It's absolutely uh, incredible. But you know, uh, here's a question for you: They fast track Ukraine to NATO. What difference does it make at this point in time? I was thinking about this the other day. What difference does it make? Does anyone actually think that Ukraine and NATO, that the U.S. is going to go to war with Russia, that the American people would, would actually be, yeah, let's, let's go to war with Russia? No, no, no chance. Uh, Europe, is anyone in Europe going to actually put boots on the ground in Ukraine because it's in NATO? I'll tell you right now, there is not one person in Greece, not one person in Greece, even the most pro-Ukraine person in Greece, and we have them here. Not many, but we do have them. They would be like, no chance am I going to Ukraine to fight the Russians. No well, chance. I mean, the, my, my point in all of this is outside of nuclear weapons being used, I mean, the whole NATO thing to me seems null and void as well, because I think Russia is just going to call their bluff. Even if Stoltenberg and Ursula, uh, Borrell, Annalena, even if they get their way and they fast track Ukraine into NATO, I think Russia is just going to continue to do what they're doing. They say it over and over again. We're going to achieve our goals. Period. Yes. And when the Russians say something, the Russians mean it. Absolutely. And, and, I, and a NATO, NATO membership for Ukraine is, to me, at this point in time, maybe a year ago, it would have been different, maybe. But at this point in time, I don't think it makes any, any difference, at least with, with, Russia's, uh, um, with Russia's goals. That they've set out, I don't think it makes any difference, and I can't see any country getting involved. And if the United States doesn't get involved, if the U.S. doesn't put boots on the ground, then what European country is going to put boots on the ground? I mean, I was reading a New York Times article which said that the German military is worse off today than it was a year, a year and a half ago after Olaf Schultz pledged that he's going to put $100 billion into it and he's going to reform it and revive it and all this stuff. Uh, the New York Times said that the, the German military, they have no ammo, they have no functioning toilets. I mean, it, it's a complete disaster. Uh, your absolutely. thoughts on this? Because it's, well, absolutely. But let's, this, let's logic, this, logic is, this, <laughs> this logic about Ukraine and NATO is, is, a, is, is false. They're leading, but, they're leading Ukraine into another dead end. Well, indeed. I mean, it's what General Kuyat again said. It's fanatic. It's fanatical. It is. It is uh, as you said at the start of the program. It is delusional. You know, to talk about the fact that nobody in Greece is going to fight for Ukraine. 
it's increasingly clear that nobody in Poland is going to either. Look at what is happening on Ukraine's Polish borders. They're blocked. <laughs> I mean, you know, they have all the truckers there. They're blocking. They've imposed a blockade on Ukraine. I mean, the, the mood, the sentiment in Poland, not just it's clear now amongst, you know, the, pre, the former government, but amongst people in Poland, has completely turned against this whole project. The idea of anybody in the United States or Europe fighting for Ukraine is, I mean, that, as you correctly said, last year, it was a real possibility. It was a real danger. It is not a danger anymore. And I think this is an essential thing that people really need to understand. Public opinion has turned against that whole idea completely. As you rightly say, the only conceivable country that could fight against Russia in, on behalf of NATO is the United States. American public opinion is dead against it. I think even the Biden administration understands that. And for that reason, by the way, despite what Stoltenberg is trying to do, Ukraine is not going to join NATO, not whilst this war is on the way, not until the Russians have completed their SMO. And when the Russians have completed their SMO, then it will become complete, com you know, completely impossible, conclusively impossible. But <laughs> that's not what Stoltenberg's real objective is. He doesn't want Ukraine in NATO. He does what he really doesn't want. What he's really acting to prevent are substantive negotiations between the Russians and the Americans. That's what this is ultimately all about now. And that is what Ukraine is being sacrificed to prevent. I mean, it is. He wants to destroy Ukraine. He wants he to destroy will... Ukraine to save his reputation. I mean, yes. It... Yes. Sorry. Sorry. Continue. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that is exactly correct. Just to preserve his rep, to, do, to to save his reputation, to save the reputation of all of the other people who were involved in, uh, um, you know, was in in starting the war in Europe in the first place, and also to preserve their power, <laughs> as it, because you know, reputation and power go together. This is what it is all about now, and. In the meantime, Ukraine is going down. And of course, in Ukraine itself, the Ukrainians could, in theory, break away. But there is no conceivable way that is going to happen. Just, just look at the political situation in Kiev. It's now clear that the relationship between uh, Zelensky and Zeluzhny remains utterly poisonous. I mean, you know, we've had uh, a Ukrainian MP making all kinds of critical statements about Zeluzhny. We've had Budanov's wife poisoned. This is a mysterious business. But bear in mind, just a few weeks ago, we had a, a man blown up, uh, supposedly, because he pulled a pin out of a grenade. It, it is increasingly looking as if the political situation in Ukraine is barely under control. And given this crisis in Kiev itself, negotiations... <laughs> simply cannot happen. And so we've had statements today from Kuleba saying that Ukraine will not trade Crimea for NATO membership. That's the Ukrainian foreign minister. We've had Zelensky saying that, you know, we're going to get into Crimea soon. Uh, Donbass might be a bit more difficult, but we'll get that back as well. We have all these fantastical, delusional statements, even when the results on the battlefield point 
in a completely different direction. And even as the news from Ukraine itself is of a population that is becoming increasingly cynical and disaffected and demoralized, they're becoming increasingly worried. The winter looks like it's going to be much colder than last winter was. There's enormous worries about whether the Russians are going to attack the energy system. It looks like all the money to repair the energy system was embezzled, so it's in no shape or condition to withstand another Russian missile offensive, like the one we saw last winter. And there is no solution, no answer to Ukraine's military problems, which are going to continue to get worse. But we see that both in Kiev and in NATO, the NATO bureaucracy, and in Europe, all the talk is to try to keep um, Ukraine still in the war, still fighting, to feed the stories of potential Ukrainian victory, to talk about the victory in Kiev, which, as we now know, is a complete fiction. I mean, we discussed that before. The Russians withdrew as part of a diplomatic deal, which the West sabotaged. Um, they talk about Kharkiv and Kherson region, and the Kharkiv offensive is being reversed. And the Kherson offensive is at a standstill. And the losses Ukraine suffered as a result of those were horrendous. But the realities today on the battlefronts anyway are completely different. But Stoltenberg, we won't talk about that. Annalena Baerbock won't talk about that. What she's doing instead is warning people about not being fatalistic about Ukraine. They want must go on still supporting Ukraine, giving Ukraine everything so that it can continue the war until it is finally destroyed. Uh, I mean, the Russians say, you know, that it's until the last Ukrainian, and that's what it's beginning to look like. Yeah, yeah it's almost like they want to, I guess it's like destroying the scene of the crime, I guess. You know, they just, I, I think Stoltenberg, von der Leyen, Annalena, Zelensky, Yermak, all these people, they're so... Uh, up to up to their neck in in so much just just crap, you know, just nasty crap that they just they've they've decided let's just destroy the whole thing and and Russia did it exactly and, and blame it all on, that's what they're blame doing it all, blame yeah. it all on Putin blame it all on the Russians uh, when Ukraine is destroyed all this you know hundreds of thousands of people have been killed it's all Putin's fault and because it's all Putin's fault we must take even more steps to insulate and protect and defend Europe from him and clamp down even more on anybody in Europe who says otherwise. So that 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 is the let, agenda now. Yeah, let me just, uh, just to wrap up the video, let me read you a quote, and I want your, your thoughts, your human psychology uh, input on this, just so we understand how these people think. And this has to do with Brexit, but... You know, I, I think you'll be I think you'll be able to relate this to Ukraine. So uh, Ursula von der Leyen, she gave an interview or made some comments about Brexit and how the UK is is now looking to, to move back into into the European Union. That's the, traje the trajectory of things. And she said she said this. I keep telling my children and she's talking about Brexit. I keep telling my children, you have to fix it. We goofed up. You have to fix it. So I think here, too, the direction of travel, my personal opinion, is clear. I, I, I just read that quote, we goofed up. And I just think, you know, 
This is the way these people think. This is how yes. they're going to explain everything when when, when yes. it all collapses. It's just going to be like you know. Uh, what, do, what are your thoughts on on, on that? The, just the, the psychology of these these globalists in these in these institutions is is it, it just sickens you. But anyway, that's that's how they see the world. Oh, yeah. That, that, that is exactly what they're going to do. You know, we acted out of good faith. It was a mistake. We made, a, we made mistakes, as we did with Iraq, as we did with Libya, but we acted with the best of intentions all along. And if everything in the end turned out bad, well, it was not our fault. It was because there wasn't enough uh, 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 will and determination. People didn't give as much money as they should have done. They didn't give as much weapons as they should have done. They could have given more. Never explain how that could have happened. And, of course, in the end, in this particular crisis, uh, it's absolutely not our fault. It's the fault of that horrible man in the Kremlin and these terrible people around him, Putin and his accomplices. They are the people who ruined our beautiful dream. And, you know, we, the, the only responsibility you take is that you made certain mistakes. You goofed. You goofed up. You still want all those hundreds of thousands of students and women to go to the battlefronts. That's, but that's only a mistake if they had died. It's only a mistake on your part if they, if they died. I mean, it's good that we make these programmes now because um, when those excuses are made... We have programs like this as a public record of what it was really, of what it really all amounted to. Before we finish, just wanted to say I noticed that in Britain, and I mentioned it on my uh, program uh, for my own channel yesterday, they're now resurrecting the story that um, it was actually Putin who turned down the prospects of peace last year. That there was this mysterious deal that nobody knows anything about that was negotiated with. Cossack, you know, Cossack, Putin's um, official, that he did some kind of a deal with the Ukrainians uh, um, and that Putin rejected it. There is absolutely, just to say again, there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever for that story. But it again tells you that deep down, the British know full well what they actually did in March and April of last year when they knocked away the chance Ukraine had to agree to a peace. Um, we've seen the same comments now being made by Aristovich. Aristovich has confirmed, has confirmed that as well, that Ukraine had a good peace deal then, and it was all thrown away. And the he, British he said very good, very, very good. favorable peace deal, yeah. he said. He actually said the Russians made... A lot of concessions. Exactly. That's what he exactly. said. Exactly. Exactly. So a very, very good peace deal was made last year. The British played an instrumental role in throwing it away. But they're, they're starting to get nervous that people are start, going to start pointing the fingers at them. So they're now falling back again on this fictitious story about this other deal that was supposedly rejected by Putin and was negotiated by a man, he, he's, you know, his former um, chief of staff, Dmitry Kozak, who played no role, actually, no known role in the negotiations at all. So just, just remember that, to keep an eye out for that story, because it looks like it's being revived.
Try, trying to protect uh, Boris Johnson, protect Boris Johnson again. Well, not, uh, yeah. not just Boris yeah. Johnson, but the in- reputation well, of the entire bl- yeah. British political class. Who the one thing they were united about was this. Yeah, um, yeah. Sure. Let, let's end it there. Actually, let, let me ask you one more question about what's going on with with Ukraine. I, I think this is a bad sign for. Um, Zelensky, but maybe it's not. Maybe I'm looking into this a bit a bit too much. But all of a sudden, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen Navalny kind of resurrected again. The story of Navalny. Two weeks ago, he was given an award in Germany, the the Bambi Awards or the I don't know, some Bambi Awards or something for humanitarian stuff. Or anyway, he was given these awards. Uh, von der Leyen presented Navalny with this award. Just out of the blue, Navalny gets an award. Uh, the other day, Politico had Navalny as the number two dreamer in the world right after Zelensky because he's the only real opposition to Putin. And I was just thinking, you know, this this is probably bad news for Zelensky because if there's one thing that we know about the, the collective West, it's that they always have to have some sort of Putin foil, some sort of, of, of person who's, opposed, who's opposing Putin, the good guy and the bad guy. And it was Navalny, then it switched to Zelensky. It seems like there might be some effort to to resurrect, you know, the whole Navalny thing again. I mean, I, I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, uh, you unless, of course, right. they're trying to give regime change another go and, well, they, and they want to I, get I, Navalny back I, in the news. I don't know. I think I think it's now e- even the most deluded, deluded people in Washington and Brussels realize that the regime change isn't going to happen. Uh, not, I mean, not, not, not in Russia. But you're absolutely correct. I think that's exactly what it's all about. I mean, you know, Zelensky is no longer <laughs> the flavour of the month, to put it mildly. In fact, we have articles in, the, in Time telling us that he's deluded and messianic and all of that. So we have to have some other hero, some other great Putin hero. So we dust off Zel- N- Navalny again and we trundle him back onto the stage. Um, because the one thing we cannot allow is people actually ceasing to see Putin himself in the darkest possible terms. So how do you keep somebody in anything other than the darkest possible terms? So how do you keep somebody in the dark? It's fine projecting the light onto someone else. So once it was Zelensky, now it's again Navalny. So Putin remains the dark, lo- the dark lord uh, there um, on the stage. Um, but, you know, we can't really la- let the light shine on him so that people might actually get a true sense of what he's really like. Out of nowhere, they start talking oh, about no. Navalny again. No, no. Yeah. Very, very odd. Anyway, all right, we'll uh, end it there. Forgotten, the man, in, forgot, forgotten he, man in Russia now. I mean, he really is. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, his, his approval before all of this started was very, very low. I imagine now it's... <laughs> okay, the Duran.locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, Rockfin, and Twitter X. And go to the Duran shop. 20% off. Use the code the Duran 20. Take care.